Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we're going to be continuing in our series, Celebrating Our Freedom in Christ. And we'll be looking in our Bibles at 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 to 13, as Dr. Neufeld provides us a message entitled, Knowledge of My Brother and Sister. Every one of us knows the reality of deliberately limiting our freedom. I mean, you did it when you went to university or trade school or when you got your first job. The minute you began to work, you couldn't just take a day off at the beach anytime you wanted to. You've limited your freedom to do with your time whatever you want to do. Trading it in for a far greater advantage, it's called financial freedom. I mean, for those of us who are married, we've chosen to limit our freedom to express interest in and affection for members of the opposite sex that might attract us for a lifetime. See, now that I'm married, I never pick up the phone and just call a woman to chat unless, of course, that woman is my wife, my daughter, or my sister. See, period. I don't go out for coffee with someone of the opposite sex. I don't engage in writing emails and carrying on a relationship in that way. See, I do have relationships with women related to faith and fellowship in the church, but I've deliberately built walls around my relationships with the opposite sex for a lifetime and that happened when I married my wife. I've deliberately limited my freedom for a far greater advantage, a good, loving, trusting, faithful relationship with her and a whole and loving family, even into my extended family. My limits on my personal freedom is offered up gladly for something much better, a much greater freedom. See, every one of us has, in some area of life, deliberately limited our freedom. Now, we're doing a series on Christian freedom, and freedom is the calling in the Christian life. And when it comes to non-moral items, Paul has said, all things are lawful for me. But as we look at our text today, we're going to find that Paul insists that there are areas where we should deliberately put boundaries around our freedom, and we're going to find out why. Now, in the last broadcast, we discovered a knowledge base which Paul insisted that all mature Christians in Corinth possessed. That knowledge base helped them to understand what an idol truly was, and also they understood both that there was but one God, and they also understood the relationship between the Father and the Son. This was a, a part of their basic Christian training. But that has simply been the necessary foundation upon which the discussion of freedom can begin. Look, if you want to address freedom in your own life and, and how it operates, but if you're not rooted in the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, you just can't get going. You know, as an example, I mean, as a pastor, I have found myself often involved in ministry to a couple that's living together outside of wedlock, and they proclaim to me some kind of liberty. I mean, sometimes they'll even say, well, everyone's got some sin in their life. I mean, some people overeat and others gossip, and we're living together, and no one has the right to condemn us. See, what's missing in their lives is any kind of rootedness in the Christian faith. Who is God? What is sin? What's the nature of redemption? What's my hope in Christ? How does the Holy Spirit work in a human life? What's my reason for existence? I mean, yeah, they make up some of these answers, true enough, but they don't rise out of knowledge. And because this knowledge is missing, they simply can't grasp what freedom might actually look like and how to live within that freedom. And so having reminded the Corinthians of some of the things they knew, 
Paul is now at a place where he can move them to the next level. All Christian knowledge, he has said, must be combined with love. Now, here we might speak of love for God, and that is valid, but in the context of this passage, he's speaking about Christian love for one another. So let's read our passage, 1 Corinthians 8, 7 to 12. However, not all possess this knowledge. For some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest my brother stumble. So let's remember the issue. Some believers in Corinth were eating food, or in this case, purchasing meat that had been offered up to idols in the temples in Corinth. But these were people who had possessed the knowledge that an idol was nothing and that God had created all things. And hence, the meat offered up to idols was in fact God's meat not the idol's meat, and because of that, they began to exercise their freedom. Let's look at how Paul begins this discussion. He starts by acknowledging not all possess this knowledge. He means knowledge of God, the knowledge that idols are nothing. Now, that seems curious. You see, back in verse 1, he says, all of us possess knowledge, and now he says, not all of us possess knowledge. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, maybe in verse 1, He speaks about Christians who have this knowledge, and in verse 7, he speaks of non-Christians, but that's not so. See, the rest of the passage makes it clear that Paul has Christians in view the whole way through. And if I've been right, that teaching Christians the basic nature of idolatry and the nature of God, that this was a part of basic Christian discipleship in that city, well, we might wonder if some Christians weren't being taught. Or perhaps they were brand new believers and they'd not yet gotten the proper training. But if that were so, we still have Paul saying, all of us possess knowledge. See, I think the answer to this is actually quite simple. Notice the rest of the verse. Paul speaks of some who have a weak conscience. I think what Paul has in mind when he says, not all possess knowledge is that not all have been able to take the knowledge of basic Christian teaching and work that knowledge out in all areas of their life. And so, if they were to eat food that had been offered up to an idol, old associations begin to come back. So, let's review the situation. Corinth was a city filled with idols and with temples for the worship of idols. Every day, people would stream to the various temples in Corinth and bring food for sacrifice. Some of that food found its way into the markets and could be purchased at a reduced price. Because the Corinthian Christians were learning about freedom in Christ and were at different stages of how to apply that freedom fully, they struggled with three different scenarios. The first, are Christians allowed to participate in sacrificing food to the idols? And Paul is going to answer that question in chapter 10. So we're going to have to to wait to get to that. And now the second question. Since there's so much temple meat in the marketplaces available from the temple, meat that has been sacrificed to idols, can Christians use their freedom to buy temple meat? 
Well, Paul's going to answer that question as well in chapter 10. And that's not what he answers in chapter 8. See, here's the question of chapter 8. Not only were the temples used for worship and sacrifice of food, there was so much food around that the temples ran what you might call restaurants. Dr. Anthony Thistleton describes the scene and its impact on Christians. He says, influential non-Christian friends, business contacts, political officials with whom Christians wanted to win to Christ, often would invite Christians to dinners or banquets in the temple precincts. And then he goes on to say, these meals were really not acts of worship. The temple simply had the most suitable premises for entertaining guests, even if admittedly, the invitations often said, to cite a common example, the Lord Serapis invites you, or another God, for instance. And this was no more than a courtesy nod to a false god of that temple supposed to be the president of the meal. So for the Christian who was interested in maintaining contact with non-Christians, I mean, this was an excellent opportunity. Have supper with non-Christians and hope to speak into their lives. And so the question was simple. If we're free in Christ, can't we go to something like that? I mean, can't we choose? Now, before I go on, can you see the relevance of this for us? Should a Christian go to a Chinese restaurant that has an idol of a god over that restaurant? Should a Christian go to a secular concert that might have dope smoking and drinking if they go there to be a witness to a non-believer? Should a Christian participate or have a meal in a casino? You see, I can think of hundreds of applications of this passage. And all of these questions are about freedom to go where and to do what I want to do. I mean, after all, you're not participating in unrighteousness. I mean, you're only there for another reason. And with this comes the lead question of this study. When should I deliberately limit my freedom? And when should I insist on the maximum use of my freedom. Now, please remember, we're talking about when and when not to deliberately put boundaries around our freedom, perhaps for the sake of others and the witness that it might bring. Every week in doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada Here's a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join In Doubt On Air on the indoubt.ca website the InDoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about InDoubt, or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca. Imagine for a moment what a conversation felt like in ancient Corinth. Before you came to Christ, you were among those who constantly offered sacrifices to the idols in the temple. You had a sense of mystery and fear. 
in a sense that when you were feasting in the temple, you were eating and drinking the God himself. And as the God entered you, you drank some more, and around the temple were sacred prostitutes and even little boys and girls all asking you to throw off every single moral restraint. And then you got saved. I mean, you were free from that. But the very smell of the meat and the incense in the temple and the sound of the priest chanting, well, it would all come back to you. You wouldn't be able to say, well, I can go to the temple and eat with non-Christians there because I know that that God is nothing. You see, one smell of the temple and it would all come back. It was like a lure calling and beckoning you back. You just couldn't take it. And for you, it all came back to the meat itself. That was the trigger to your memories. In order to enter into mature freedom, well, this is going to take time. And here's what you needed time to do. You needed time to gain your confidence in Christ. You'd have to go back to the truths in verse 6 over and over again. There is one God, and idols are nothing. Slowly, piece by piece, you would learn to trust him and his mighty power over all the demons in Corinth. And so in verse 7, Paul speaks of those whose consciences are weak. So what is a weak conscience? Well, let's explain this matter this way. Conscience is that part of us placed into us by God, which serves as a warning system. It's a moral compass, a moral warning light, which tells us that there's danger ahead. That's why a conscience is a good thing, but it is often unreliable. So imagine you're hiking in the woods somewhere and you're lost. So you get out your compass and navigate to the next part in your route. And after a while, you realize you're not even close to the right location. Instead of getting to a clearing, you're now trapped in rocks and cliffs and other things, and soon you figure stuff out. You've been trapped in a magnetic field that has made your compass malfunction and has driven you off course. See, that's an analogy of our conscience. The world is full of magnetic fields that drive our moral compass off course. See, I know some believers who can't enter a movie theater because they used to go there to watch smut. I mean, they shouldn't. I know of one man who can't put on hockey skates because of its former associations. He shouldn't. You know, in the same way, some believers in Corinth, I mean, those who were weak, could never look at a piece of meat as just being meat. If they ate a piece of meat like that, they would defile their conscience. So please understand that the meat that had been offered to idols that was served in the temple restaurants was just that. It was God-created meat. And that leads Paul to a conclusion. Some actions are only positive or negative based on the context. That's what Paul means in verse 8. Food that is eating of it or refusing it will not commend us to God. Paul would say in Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink. And so Paul offers two conclusions. First, if you, that is, all believers in the Corinthian church, refuse the invitation to go to the temple for a meal, you will not be worse off. You know, someone's going to say, well, what about the opportunity to rub shoulders with non-Christians, to which Paul, in wise, fatherly ways, says, hear me, you will not be worse off if you don't go. I mean, can I, by the way, say that about all those gray areas, things that Christians disagree with? You're not going to be worse off if you don't participate. Paul's not done. If you do eat that meat, you will be no better off. In other words, there's no advantage to eating and there is no disadvantage of refraining from eating. So what Paul is saying is, 
you should know that there's an opportunity here to willingly limit your own freedom without suffering any negative consequences. With all of this as our test case, we're now ready to address the issue central to Christian freedom. How should I, as a free Christian, use my freedom responsibly? When should I willingly limit my freedom and when should I not? Now, there are in verses 9 to 13 four key words that I want you to notice. The first is the word right found in verse 9, as in this right of yours. The Greek word is the word authority. The strong believer has the right or even the authority over the idols and so thinks nothing of entering into the temple restaurant and eating. He has freedom from all the bondage there. Second is the word stumbling block, as in your freedom becomes a stumbling block to others. The term refers to a rock in the road. So while you're walking, you're going to trip on it. It'll cause you to fall. Paul is speaking of an event that will cause someone to sin. So in this case, when the strong uses their freedom with authority, the weak, that is the new believer, falls headlong and is immediately ensnared into sin. Now, the third word is the word found in verse 11, and it's the word destroyed. You know, that's the same word that Jesus used in the parable of the wineskins. When the new wine is put into old wineskins, it causes the wineskins to burst or to be destroyed. So in effect, the strong Christians have in their power or in their authority, the power to completely wipe out new believers so that their confidence in Christ takes a huge hit. And do you know that? See, if you've been a believer for some time, you can destroy a new Christian's faith in a second, and you can do it through the exercise of your freedom. And that leads us to the fourth word. It's found in verse 14. It's the word stumble, or it means also scandalized. Now, I don't know if you've ever been the subject of a scandal. I mean, perhaps a rumor has been circulated about you, putting you into the center of it, making you the object of scandal. And in consequence, your reputation is destroyed and you're now embarrassed to be seen in public. Well, that's the idea here. When the strong Christian accepts an invitation to eat at the temple, the new believer is destroyed or scandalized, stumbles headlong, and might wash out in his or her confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here are three commitments every free and loving Christian is going to want to make. First, I will never scandalize a new believer. See, I'm dumbfounded how this is both so important and so seldom thought about. A believer says, I have freedom to play a few rounds of poker in a casino. I have freedom to drink alcohol. I have freedom to hang out in bars. I have freedom. I'm not here arguing these points with you, except one. Each of us who have been believers for a number of years need to say this. I will never scandalize a new believer by my behavior. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 17, 1 to 2. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, this is not an excuse for people with small minds and badly educated consciences that would prevent the rest of the church from doing things that are harmless in themselves. I mean, this is not a chance for rule-bound Christians to tell people what they should be wearing, where they should be going on vacation, what kind of car they should be driving, all those examples. Do you know what I found? 
people who want to make the most rules are sometimes the people who are not interested in protecting the weak, but who want things the way they want them for their own benefit. Let me use music as an example. I know this is touchy. I mean, years ago, most churches had what was called the worship wars. I mean, it was a battle that some waged to keep contemporary music out of church. And instead of asking, how do we reach the most amount of people? How do we touch new believers? People were asking, how do we keep our musical traditions alive? Now, now look, I'm not taking up the music wars here today. I'm only trying to help us not to misuse what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us, I will not hurt the faith of a new believer. Now, here's my second commitment from verse 12. I will not sin against Christ by harming my brother. Christ loves my brother, and I love my brother as well. And here's the third commitment from verse 13. I will use my freedom to make my brother or my sister more secure, not less secure in their faith. I need to become profoundly aware that I am my brother or my sister's keeper. I would rather use my freedom for their benefit than to use my freedom for my benefit. I would rather build up another than indulge my desires. I would rather limit what things are lawful than to harm the progress of those who are learning to rid themselves of that which has been an issue in their own souls. How about you? Is your freedom tempered by love for others or is an expression of love for yourself? You know, John, as you're speaking, I was thinking, you know, Christians sometimes want the easy way out. They want to, they want this list of do's and don'ts. You can do that, you can't do this. This is okay, that's not. But Paul doesn't let us off the hook quite that easy, does he? No, and you know, lists have this attractiveness. I mean, we go all the way back to the Pharisees who are great at lists, and uh, we have all manner of lists that come to us in Christian tradition. See, lists change over time. And as they change, um, you know, people who are paying attention might say, you know, there's nothing fastened or set down. In response to that, I think what Paul does here is he invites us to consider a number of factors when we make free decisions. How does it impact my brother? What are the long-term implications for the gospel? Paul invites us into the world of wisdom rather than into the world of rules. And once we launch into the world of wisdom, suddenly we're free and we understand freedom. What a great message. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Our world is confusing. Every place we turn, there are new rules and protocols. The daily news can be baffling and disturbing and we can clearly see that there are people suffering from fear, not knowing who they can trust or or where they can find truth. Our world has never needed us to be clear on what is foundational and what is true. As a friend of Back to the Bible Canada, we know that you care about trustworthy, verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Together with you, anyone seeking to know and better understand the God of the Bible and the significance of a relationship with Jesus will find accessible, relevant, and trustworthy Bible teaching through a dynamic range of mediums and resources. To know more or to offer a gift to support this cause, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of Dr. Neufeld's series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust.